for me, there's not much about being famous that I want or like, but there are a couple of things. And I think this is probably true for a lot of public personalities of all scales. I mean, obviously, I'm at the very lowest end of the public personality scale, but I think this, I think this is probably true for 75 or 80%. Um, I think I love doing, I love performing that is for an audience and um, you can only do that if you have a certain amount of public profile. So, you know, Judge John, doing Judge John Hodgman live shows and the fact that I make money from them is awesome. I don't need to do, you know, like we, we play whatever, six, 800 seat rooms. I don't necessarily need to play arenas. I don't aspire to play arenas, uh, but you know in that in that range is where you can do it and like not travel alone and make money hello everyone at home and wherever else you may be, but I'm guessing most of you are at home. I don't know about you, but I listen to a lot fewer podcasts now that I don't drive around or travel around. But I'm making this one for you anyway. Pardon the sound quality on this one. I'm recording it with the good old iPhone headset because I have not managed to make this intro at home over the past couple months, so I'm doing it on the fly at the office. So I hope it's okay. Uh... Welcome to 15 Minutes. I'm Jamie Berger. And in just a few minutes, you will hear my conversation from way back in February with Jesse Thorne. Uh, if you don't know who Jesse Thorne is, he is perhaps most recognizable as the bailiff on the Judge John Hodgman uh, podcast, but he's actually the creator of the Judge John Hodgman podcast with John Hodgman. And he is a uh, podcast mogul. He has a network called Maximum Fun, where he has several shows, including um, a somewhat fresh air-like show um, called Bullseye, and another show called Jordan Jesse Go that's a lot more freeform, chats with comedians. And he also had a limited-run show called The Turnaround, in which he interviewed interviewers, and I highly recommend that. Um, Mark Marin, Terry Gross, uh, uh, Ira Glass, uh, Larry King, a great series called The Turnaround. Um, we talked about fame, of course, and about growing up in San Francisco and about the obligations of being an NPR um, official broadcaster and thus not able to express political views publicly. We also talked about, let's see, well, th that, that should be enough. I think by now you know whether you want to listen to this episode or not. And speaking of which, I wanted to say that for those of you regular listeners, if there are such things for this podcast, I really don't know. 
But if you're out there, you might notice this has gotten pretty sporadic. This is probably the third or fourth episode of the year, and it's the first brand new one. Um, that's because I've made this for a few years, and I really enjoy it. But from the beginning, I was pretty committed to not continuing indefinitely making something that was not being listened to. And as far as I can tell, aside from a few of you, there's no... The market has spoken. So when I'm inspired, I'm going to make these every now and then for me. But as far as making them a couple times a month, three times a month, down to two, down to one, now down to a few a year, I really like making podcasts, and I think I can do it well. But I think this hasn't quite worked. If you disagree or you have a suggestion, I'd love to take calls and emails and respond to things. I'd love to to make this podcast about whatever would interest people that would also interest me. But as much as I think every single episode, there's great material from my guests, if not from me. You know, like most people, it depends on the day. I often listen back and wish I didn't have to listen to me at all because who likes to listen to themselves? Mm, megalomaniacs. And I'm not one, I guess, or not often enough. Point is, if you go to 15minutesjamieberger.com, 1-5, the numbers, and then minutesjamieberger.com, you can contact me. Uh, you can find the show on Facebook. You can find it on Twitter or Instagram at 15minsjamieb. I would love to hear any feedback, thoughts, suggestions, because I have all the capabilities to make a podcast. I really like making a podcast. But I can't keep making a podcast as if it were my journal. So, Jesse Thorne fans who just tuned in to hear this guy whining about nobody listening to his podcast, welcome! Welcome to 15 Minutes, a podcast about fame, where I have talked to everyone from Brooke Gladstone to David Sedaris to George Saunders and many, many more over the past four years and would love to talk to you. I've also had great conversations with completely unfamous people about the vicissitudes of fame. So go back and check out some of those episodes. Episode two with Tim Lockfeld, an old skater friend from San Francisco, is one I love. Um, that all said, Jesse and I spoke by phone back in February for about an hour. And here is my conversation with Jesse Thorne. Thanks. Enjoy. Hello, Jesse Thorne. Welcome. Hi. Thank you. I thought I would start with a tweet of yours from December 9th. You tweeted, Long ago, I accepted that given the cultural vibes I project... By choice and otherwise, ellipses, I am corny public radio guy. Generally, that is a position of privilege, which I do my best to acknowledge. That said, if you think that is who I am, in caps, you don't know me. You sounded, uh, you know, a little, a little pissed off about that at, the mo at that time. <laughs> well, I mean, it's like, it's a reality of my life, and... um. It's fine. I 
I think it is most convenient to be famous <laughs> when you can manage to fit your public persona into, and I'd say this without judgment, a caricature. Um, you know, the few the fewer strokes it takes to draw a picture of you, um, both literally and figuratively, the better for being a public figure. Um, and the reason for that is that you take up a lot more space in your own life and the lives of people who are close to you than you do in the lives of all but the absolutely most passionate fans you could ever possibly have. And mostly to the extent that, you know, you're an entertainer or a, you know, public figure of some kind, you know, you're like, you're a really specific, narrow utility to people. You yeah. know what I mean? Like you, you do one particular thing, even to people who like you. And so uh, I have a pretty weird background and am a kind of an unusual kind of guy. Yeah, I that's think. fair. And, and so I, it's, I, I think that people often react to my, to me as a public figure. Not, this is not a big problem in my day-to-day -day life, although definitely people are baffled by me in my, in my day-to-day -day life as well. But, um, you know, people react to me as, as a public figure with like confusion and anger sometimes. Do you know, did that happen that day when you tweeted that? Uh, I think it probably had. I don't remember what the situation was. I know the other day that someone told me, somebody wrote a really negative uh, review of one of my shows on iTunes. I think it was Jordan Jesse Go, but I, I don't remember which one, honestly, that was all about me code switching and steering the conversation to rap music when black people were on the show. And... Um, it was bothersome to me for a couple of reasons. <laughs> One is like I'm a, I was an, I have a college degree in American studies, uh, and you know, not only did I write my thesis about rap music, um, but like you know, I took a lot of African American studies classes, and uh, and I also uh, I also grew up in a minority white neighborhood. Um, and so like, I am cert, I certainly code switch when I talk with people. Yes. It's hard to avoid. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, and that has just been a reality of my life since childhood. I don't think I have ever in my life pretended to be, uh, or aspired to be, uh, a race other than the one I am. And and besides that, for me, talking about rap music is native <laughs> to who I am culturally. It is not, uh, it isn't a, um, uh, it, it's, it, it, you know, it's not a, it's not, I'm not a visitor to it. I'm not a colonialist to it. You know what I mean? Perhaps the person tweeting is only, was tuning in for that guest and, and had no, I mean, if anyone listens to Jordan Jesse go a few times, that all becomes somewhat apparent. I mean, I guess so. I, but it's certainly something, you know, like I, somebody tweeted at me that they were like, oh, what's a guy named who's, he's a guy on, there's a guy on MSNBC who quotes rap lyrics. Like <laughs> I don't know. It, it, not Chris Matthews. 
No, it's uh, Ari Ari something. Uh, Chris Hayes actually, <laughs> Chris Hayes actually went to you know New York public schools, but um, this dude didn't. And and it's like and it's that kind of like goofy like. Um, uh, isn't it funny that I know about rap music? And God bless him. He does know about rap music. He's the, I don't question the sincerity of his. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He he carries a Wu Tang bag. Yeah, that guy. I don't can't. I don't know what his name is, and I don't, I don't really watch cable news, so I couldn't tell you. But I I only know of him. But like, there is this, uh, there is this thing which is like, isn't it funny if a white guy likes rap music? And I'm not really interested in that either because I actually do like rap music. I have since I was an adolescent, just like anyone else who likes rap music. It's not that weird for a white person to like rap music in 2020. Um, and, you know, even when I was, you know, when I was 11 in 1992, it was not weird, you know, at least where I lived. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, it's so so the the frustration with that is that, like, to the extent that I am code switching, for example, I would say one of the biggest, like I spent mo mo much of my childhood hyper aware of my social presentation for a variety of reasons. One was in the neighborhood that I lived in, I had to be very aware to pick a lane um, that kept me safe. And I was out by myself a lot just because of the, you know, I have two single parents and... Um, you know, I just I, I started taking the bus to school by myself in second grade, you know, so um, it, that just was the situation. And, you know, like I I so so one thing is one of the reasons I think that I have um, adopted some elements of kind of like almost hyper or parodic whiteness, cultural signifiers, you know, whatever it is, bow ties or mm -hmm. something is because, you know, I had to learn to project a cultural position walking down the street that was like, basically it, it didn't <laughs> sort of like rode the line between uh, worth, worth jumping because he's not from the neighborhood and probably has money and uh, worth jumping because he might be, you know, claiming a different set or, um, uh, right. or, you know, a wor or a worthy rival, right? Like I had to be a certain amount of corny to be, <laughs> to be cool, <laughs> to get by. Right. And then also, you know, I went to very different kinds of schools in my life. I went to very fancy, um, progressive private school in middle school in the suburbs, uh, that I, you know, took the train to, and I went to, a. uh, you know, a, a public high school in San Francisco um, where things were very, very different. And like, I felt much more different in the suburban private school than I did in the public high school. That's School of the Arts. That was School of the Arts in San Francisco. Yeah. So like, anyway, the, the moral of the story is um, it would be a lot easier <laughs> if... Um, it would be a lot easier if the outlines of who I am and what I do were a little easier to, uh, draw, you know? And I mean, this is true of, um, this is true of, uh, uh, you know, me being a menswear 
writer and video host as well. Like there's, I just do a lot of different things and I'm kind of a weird guy and, um, and I'm not a kind of weird guy that people understand intuitively, you know, um, uh, I'm like, you know, I'm not just like a regular, I'm not like a nerd in the way that, uh, a nerd celebrity normally is. I've wrestled with similar, you know, I spent a decade being a co-owner of a bar and restaurant in a small town. And so that's the guy I will always be to people there. But, um, and instead of just going with that, I think our, our friend, uh, John Hodgman was like, okay, this is, this is the public me a long time ago. He seemed to get it. Like, it's not all of who he is. Of course, he might be a little nerdier than both of us, <laughs> but, but he's not, he doesn't fight it. He doesn't bristle at it. Well, I think it just so happens. I mean, there's, with John dealt with these issues himself. And in fact, the podcast that the two of us do together, Judge John Hodgman, I think was, a, he has described it to me, and I think in public as sort of a catalyst for the development of a more authentic public yes. persona for him. But like, I think John, you know, the reason that John was able to become an instant success in show business in his mid to late thirties um, is that he fit like his, his thing fit a thing that there was need for. And he did it a couple different ways. You know, first it was expert, expert nerd. Then it was, um, then he did deranged millionaire for a while <laughs> Um, that was another way of kind of reflecting his uh, his hyper whiteness, his hyper straight white male whiteness, um, and and only recently has he endeavored to encompass a, a, a sort of wider spectrum of his own humanity uh, into his public persona, and you know Judge John Hodgman was like the first thing he ever did that really he was doing as mm -hmm. himself. And then these last two wonderful books that I try to push on people, and I'm like, you should read this, but if they aren't, if they're already John nerds, then I think they might not like the books, but if they're people who I'm generally friends with who are more, I'd be telling it to bookish people, and they'd be like, really, a John Hodgman book? And I'm like, really, just read it. But it's hard to shake. Uh yeah, but I mean, John is the is. I mean, like uh, John is one of my best friends, and we've been friends for fifteen years or something at this point. And um, you know, like he is a, a he's from he's you know he's from Boston. He he went to but Yale. But the heartfeltness, <laughs> you is know, new. you know, and and the, and the political stances. Oh, yeah, and things for like sure. that that are in these last two books that are powerful. Powerful. He's writing powerful stuff that you know that's emotional, and that seems new, uh, and hard harder to sell if you already know him pretty well. For me, somebody somebody uh, tweeted at me. Maybe I said something on Judge John Hodgman or something, but somebody tweeted at me the other day about conchas, which are like a, a a kind of baked good you get at a Mexican bakery, and uh, and it's like it's very hard for me to convey. <laughs> in a concise manner, like that I have really strong feelings about uh, Mexican, Mexican-American baked goods because I grew up in a predominantly Mexican, Mexican-American neighborhood with, you know, my my mom uh, was working at the Mexican Museum in San Francisco at the time. And I like visited Mexico a bunch of times. Like, 
mostly what people are like is like, what's this white guy got to say about uh, uh, about conchas, you know? And uh, that's fine. Like, I understand it, why that is, but it is complicated to to express. Yeah, and frustrating, you know, to an extent. Like, the, the assumptions... Yeah, I can't yeah. be sure. I mean, like, I, I think it is generally... The frustration comes from, you know, like... We've had a fair number of, you know, going back to the question of of code switching and and hip hop and stuff. Like we've had a fair number of rappers on uh, both Jordan Jesse Go and uh, Bullseye, and of course, are the sort of like third chair, so to speak. Of Judge John Hodgman is a uh, is a rapper, Gene Gray, and um, you know, like when DJ Quick comes in to be, get interviewed on Bullseye. Uh, I don't have a lot of those problems with him because I can, he, you know, he's ta- he's sitting with me and he, you know, within five minutes, he can tell that I'm not a Yahoo and that I'm not, you know, that I'm not faking anything. You know what I mean? And, uh, and it's like, oh, great. Yeah, this is a, this is a person who cares. Great. That's, that's what he's hopes to meet when he's getting interviewed. You know what I mean? Um, it's mostly people who are kind of flying through and they're, they've either got me in a, in a box they thought of ahead of time where they're trying to put me in one and, uh, it's, and it doesn't always, it's not always a, a comfortable fit. Right. And, and on air, I've never seen you, you know, be like, look, pal, you know, about anything to anyone in that sense. It was only on good old Twitter where we, you know. Well, I mean, the like another this a sub a subcategory of that that actually I was just talking with John Hodgman with when we were on the road, um, is we got the, we got this uh, we got this email from somebody that was really accusatory about something I had said on the show. I don't remember what it was, and it said like, well, you know, when you're talking about rich white guys like mm. you who've never known any other life, right? And John, John, to his credit, he said, I don't know if I ever told you about this because I didn't want to upset you. But he's like, I wrote back and said, say what you will about me. I certainly grew up in comfortable upper middle class circumstances. But, you know, to the extent that to the like to the extent that Jesse ever made any money, it was after he was in his 30s and uh and when he was a child, he fit every government definition of poverty. So, I mean, I don't mean to suggest that I grew up hungry because I didn't. Um, and, you know, I had a lot of other advantages even beyond being a straight white dude. Like, you know, both my parents went to college. Um, and there was no question that I would ever not go to college. It was obvious that I would go to college. You know, like I know plenty of people who went through a lot of stuff around that. Um, but like, I know what it is to go to the doctor and pay for it with a sticker issued to you from the state. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, I know what it is to get free lunch at school, et cetera. Yeah, and part of what comes with attention is people are going to assume what, what makes them feel better to assume. <laughs> well, bringing back to my little, my little niche here. So. A lot of what you do, well, especially in, like, would you, you know, that 
Is Judge John Hodgman the most successful thing you're involved with or or produce right now? Yeah, I mean, I guess it depends on how you count. It definitely it definitely has the most podcast listeners. I think Bullseye, yeah, Bullseye has more listeners overall because it's on many, you know, it's on a few hundred public radio stations. Um, uh, but those obviously those listeners have a very different relationship with the show than a podcast subscriber does. My question, my thinking in terms of those two was that in both of these places, you are, you're taking, you know, your public persona is a secondary role and you seem very comfortable with that. You know, you're the interlo inter yeah, interlocutor as a, as a, as an interviewer, or you're the sidekick as the bailiff. Is that what you prefer? That's interesting. I think of them as actually, I think of them in different categories. Yeah, they're not exactly. Yeah. Um, I, no, I mean, obviously the, the shows are in different categories, but I think of my jobs as being very different mm -hmm. on those yeah. two shows. Like, um, And so I, th I think of myself as definitely secondary on Judge John Hodgman. Um, I mean, I... I will <laughs> take this opportunity to say once in a while somebody is like, how come Jesse's on Judge John Hodgman? It's like, I did think of the show. <laughs> um, uh, it's it's very much John has John deserves as much creator credit as I do for obvious reasons. Uh, the show is in his, it, you know, it is after the, after the style of John Hodgman because it's hosted by John Hodgman and he and I make those kind of creative decisions together. Um, but yeah, like on Judge John Hodgman, I'm basically the announcer. Uh, on 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 live shows, on live shows, I do more jokes and stuff. But I real that truly is a, a secondary position. On I think of my job on Bullseye as being more about being a host, and so even though I'm doing the traffic on. I'm directing traffic on Judge John Hodgman to some extent. Like I'm doing intros and outros and making sure stuff happens and stuff. Uh, on Bullseye, I think um, it is the most responsibility, even though this the focus is on the guest, um, because it is me by myself. And then on Jordan Jesse Go, uh, I think for a long time I was doing most of the host work but at this point jordan maybe even does more host work than i do other than the fact that when we introduce a segment i talk first um so th that is very much uh that is very much a, a team effort so like when i think of bullseye what i think of is the responsibility of you know that that host job which is you know when no one else is talking you have to say something even if you don't have something interesting mm -hmm. to say i i want to say that every now and then on judge john hodgman you you pick your moments you take a shot and it's always really good and you you i listened to some talk you gave about you know living ethical your ethical life being super important um and there was an episode this summer where i was about to get angry um and you jumped in and, and did it for me um, when LeVar Burton was on and mm -hmm. John and LeVar were, but bo were both about to be like, yeah, it's okay that that guy changes the temperature from 3000 miles away. And you were like, hold on a minute. And you, and you, you <laughs> stepped in and it, cause it was, cause it was wrong. And then they were like, oh yeah, maybe you're right. So that was great. Oh. Well, I think John relies on me to some extent 
and God bless him for it because he wouldn't he doesn't have to he does this because he's a, such a conscientious guy but I think he relies on me to some extent to uh, notice if he's missing something um, and it's something that I can do because I'm talking less <laughs> like I I'm I'm able to like I function a little bit as like a second producer on the show uh, in addition to our producer Jennifer um, and then when we do shows that are that don't have litigants on them that are us answering, you know, written in letters, um, he will often explicitly check in with me on that, on that kind of stuff. I think that was, that was what the deal was with, uh, with LeVar, Mm -hmm. um, with whom I am on a first name basis, (laughs) having talked to him on the phone that one time. Mm -hmm. He's a really nice man. He's so nice. Um, my, my, our old producer, our old Judge Sean Hodgman producer produces his podcast. She has like, she has nothing but mm-hmm. nice things to he say about like it. Um, yeah, sweet dude. But like, I think they just missed something in that case. I don't think it was like, I've never found John is so kind and wise actually. And that, that's like the thing that is the reason that, um, he is every bit as much the creator of the show as I am is that like I formatted the show and like thought of how it works and so on and so forth. Um, and I usually like sort of take the lead on that. But the thing that makes the show what it is, is John's wisdom. And I frankly was not planning for John's wisdom. I just was planning for him to be funny. Um, and so, but, but really it turned out to be a show about, being considerate of others, basically, <laughs> which I had no plan for. I just thought it was a, a, a funny comedy show where it'd be funny if we if we judged. Yeah, people. <laughs> but it's become a, an actual somewhat of a uh, uh, not to use a you know in the good way a self help show. Hmm. Yeah, I think especially specifically on that show, it's a sort of a. It, I think the 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 top area where it is a self help show is for nerds and especially for nerd dudes. I think, like, to the extent that there is, I, I think there can be an impulse in people who are, um, who think systemically, uh, people who have often been the brightest person in a room, uh, people who have um, uh, different levels of social acuity, um, to address problems by designing a system. This is something that comes up all the time on Judge John Hodgman. Oh yeah, that that if you des- if you design the best system, then the problem is solved. You know, sort of engineering thinking. And how can and anyone resent you designing the best system? Exactly, and and I feel like one of the one of the biggest self help areas of Judge John Hodgman is uh, is reminding people that human beings are social animals, and we have responsibilities to others that go beyond. Uh, that go beyond our own perspectives and our own understanding of what a problem is and how it should be solved. Um, and that those social, those social relationships and those social interactions have inherent value in and of themselves. Um, and that's something that, uh, as I said, I'm, I'm not saying it's only dudes, but it's been about 80, yeah. 20, uh, <laughs> Uh, on like, I've got a system that's better than everyone else's system. And in some cases it may be marginally better by the metrics they're using, but, um, you know, it's, it kind of reminds me of, uh, 
it, it kind of reminds me of, you know, people being mad at Facebook and Facebook's like, how could we be wrong? We have engineers who A-B tested everything and you chose that you liked it, that you clicked on a button that says like. It's like, well, actually, actually there you go. <laughs> actually, let, let's let's measure your let's let's take a look at your inputs and outputs. You know, like let's let's get a holistic look at this because you're you're yeah. missing something. And the the yeah, and 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 that that a lot of these. And I I'm sorry, but it is nearly all guys have so much trouble accepting is that logic isn't the only part of a thing. Yeah, like sure. th there's emotional content here that you that when you correct someone in, in in a Facebook thread to help them have their political opinion be stronger, you're still correcting them, <laughs> and maybe just don't. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's see. I don't know if we ever. I don't know where we went, but it was fun uh, in that. But I have a couple of turnaround questions, uh, which I do. You want to describe so I don't the the, the show. Yeah, I I never went to journalism school, and in fact have all it have essentially never taken a a journalism class in my life. A f a friend of my <laughs> a friend of my mom's used to be an editor at the Washington Post, and he ran the journalism department at San Francisco State. And I did work on the newspaper, the Golden Gator, <laughs> yeah. at San Francisco State for a semester when I was in high school. Um, and I wrote an article that I hope no one will go into the microfiche and find. <laughs> um, but I never took any classes and I'd never, you know, I only learned through inference about the inverted pyramid and so forth. All these, you know, news and journalism things. And I had been an interviewer since I was in college when I started my radio show, which had been at that point nearly 20 years, more than 15. And I thought, well, if I'm doing this for a living and I never went to J school, uh, I should do a show where I interview people who are interviewers and ask them about interviewing and try and figure out if I'm doing this right. <laughs> you know, like I knew I was doing it at least medium, right? Because I had been, had some success at it. I knew I was not a total disaster. But I thought like I, I feel like these other people probably know things that I don't know. You know what I mean? And then I thought, if I'm going to do like if I'm going to ask Ira to do this, it would be great to make it into a show, make it public and give other people access to it who might be in the same position I was. You know, like I, I went to a school without, uh, a, you know, where there was a very tiny journalism program and the, you know, the journalism minor, which was all you could get was erased my junior or senior year. So. Um, you know, there's a lot of people who go work in journalism who don't have an educational background in journalism. And, um, you know, I just thought I'd love to learn about this. So it was a show where I asked interviewers about interviewing and I interviewed everyone from, I, I interviewed about 10 or 12 people and, and it ranged from Terry Gross to Jerry Springer and Larry King and Katie Couric and, um, Ray Suarez and, you know, people that I most substantially people that I had met at some point in my life just for booking reasons. But it was fascinating when you were talking to Ira and you two clearly knew each other more than a little bit, it seemed to me. But at that point, but that he was. Are you suggesting that we were romantic? No, never. But I'm not suggesting you weren't, though. But uh, but that he was a little bit like you really don't know how to do that. You you make these successful shows, and you were like, "No, I'm not editing in my head. 
I don't edit these shows at all. Uh, and he's so the opposite of what either you or I do. I mean, I love these rambling conversations, and he can't stand them. Well, I mean, Ira Ira was a reporter for 20 years. I mean, that's that's where that comes from. You know, like, his show is the grandest vision a reporter could ever have, basically. <laughs> it's like, take that mindset and expand it to the broadest the the broadest most incredible artistic vision ever but it's at the end of the day he's still he still approaches his work like a reporter and i love the, i've i've heard you in talks talk about getting about awkwardly getting advice from from ira when you knew him you know earlier i i once went out to dinner after a comedy show and i was one of the people there and i was just starting this and he didn't give me advice. He just said that sounds like the worst podcast idea ever. <laughs> and we, you know, it, it, <laughs> and thus here I am four years later. Um, uh, but I had two people that I wondered if you tried to get or thought about getting. One of whom I'd love to have heard on the turnaround, and one of whom I don't want to hear at all. But it would have made sense. And you can figure out which is which. It's Howard Stern and Joe Rogan. Oh, Howard Stern and Joe Rogan. I was going to guess Howard Stern and Nardwar, the Human Serviette. Uh, the answer is we would have had Nardwar, uh, but Nardwar was actually ill. He was in the hospital when we were taping the show, mm -hmm. so um, he was he, he missed like he was he was kind of out of commission for like six months um, with some serious health problems. So we weren't able to get Nardwar, uh, but I have met Nardwar, and I would have loved to have had Nardwar. Uh, I Howard Stern, we asked and got a no. Uh, it turned out. Uh, it turned out to be good that we got the same from Charlie Rose. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Barbara Walters, we also got a hard no from. Um, I'm trying to think if there was anybody else. Usually, people usually people ask about Stern or the the Hot Wings guy, the guy who eats hot wings and interviews oh, people. Oh, yeah, yeah, um, I've heard about it's him. Hugely popular on YouTube. Yeah. yeah. Um, I. Uh, I would have loved to have had Stern. Um, as far as Joe Rogan goes, uh, <laughs> long pause. I don't know. You know, like he was good on news radio. I don't know what to say. Like he, um, I, I don't want to hear from him myself, but he's very, he said so many, he said so many shitty things and I have no impression that he's a good interviewer. I don't, he, maybe he is. I don't know. Um, I know that he, you know, there was a there was a a former comedian who was harassing me on Twitter about having a kid who's transgender and got banned from Twitter for talking about um David Hogg, is that the the teenager who's a gun gun rights activist? Um uh he talked about David Hogg's pubes and that got him banned from Twitter um after many other things that should have gotten him banned from Twitter. And uh, Rogan had that guy on after all that stuff happened. Yeah. And I don't know that Joe Rogan would have much insight. He just has had a lot of fucking success. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's a certain kind of guy. Yeah, certain kind of guy. I don't know whether Bernie did himself any favors with that. But, ah, this make, ah I want to ask you a question. You've talked, you've written or tweeted recently about how now you are, now that you are, I don't know, when it, when did it become the fact that you're an NPR person and thus cannot express political opinions publicly? Is that true? When I, when I signed with NPR. So 
so I previously my show was with Public Radio International, and I asked them about this. They had a they they sort of don't exist anymore, but um, uh, they had an ethics code, and I asked them about it, and they were like, "You're an entertainer, don't worry." Um, but but obviously NPR is in a very different place culturally than PRI. They're they're analogous organizations, but um, uh, NPR is just is is a target in a way that PRI certainly wasn't. So um, NPR has an ethics handbook for um, NPR staff, and uh, when I talked to NPR at the from the very beginning, I was like, "Would you be interested?" And they were like. Um, yeah, let's talk about it. One thing you should know, you'd be subject to the same ethics guidelines as NPR employees are. So, you know, so some years ago, NPR actually uh, fired, dropped a show uh, and the host got fired. Uh, that was a woman who had been involved in Occupy protests who hosted an opera show. Um, and as far as I do, I mean, they've been very, very clear with me and super chill overall, <laughs> but like very clear, like we have an ethics guide. We have ethics guidelines for reporters. You have to follow the same ethics guidelines as a reporter because you're an NPR journalist because we distribute your show. Have you struggled with that? If it was me, I would express my political opinions. I don't think maintaining, I don't think maintaining a neutral New, politically neutral public personality is that important to my arts and culture interview show. Right. And they also don't seem to mind you taking stands on trans rights, say, which you do. Well, I don't I've never gotten a complaint. Right. Well, I guess it. that's what I mean. You seem to be doing it, so, which is great. Yeah. I mean, like, I mean, I, I try and if I talk about something like that, it's, it's, I don't talk about, I don't talk about politicians. I don't talk about, um, I don't talk about laws generally. Um, it's possible you might find an exception to that, but I don't think so. I try not to. Um, I really like, I, I'm like, for me, I think it's reasonable to expect me to talk about human rights issues, especially ones that specifically affect my family. Um, cause one of my kids is transgender, but, um, uh, and in general, just like if, if they really needed to fire me over that, I guess I'd just get fired, you know. Um, and they, by the way, when I say fire me, I mean, just mean no longer distribute the show because they don't, I, I own the show, so they can't fire me. Um, but like, I think it is also fine. Like I, I grew up for context, you know, like my, my dad is, you know, he's now retired, but, um, he was an organizer his entire life, his entire adult life. Um, and certainly my entire childhood, he worked in initially primarily in the peace movement, in the, in the veterans peace movement. Um, he helped, uh, found an organization called Vietnam veterans against the war. Um, he worked for, years with his best friend, who's a guy named Ed Roberts, who essentially created the independent living movement for people living with disabilities. And um, uh, Ed was sort of like a godfather figure to me, um, not in the movie sense. <laughs> um, uh, uh, and, you know, like I, 
and I went to many protests as a kid and uh, just because I could like basically not because my dad was like trying to inculcate me or something, but mostly because my parents were single parents and couldn't afford babysitters. (laughs) So I just went everywhere. I also went to a lot of AA meetings with my dad, (laughs) but like that's, that's been a huge part of my life, my entire life. But, um, frankly, I don't think I lose that much giving up the part that is about, you know, candidates and um specific laws and so on and so forth i I don't think that um i I don't think that like it's my purpose on earth to tell people how to vote um there's other people who are better suited for that i i i don't think it's my purpose like if it was my purpose in life to be an organizer i would have taken over my dad's ngo when he was uh you know, I'm sure he would have liked for me to have done that um, when I was in my 20s. Um, but, you know, I had other stuff to do. So it's actually kind of nice in the social media con- context to um, not have to worry about that. And I try and stick to if if I there's something that I consider to be a I, I uh, if it's a joke. I joke about candidates and and politicians sometimes. I try not to, I try to make it the kind of jokes that I would make about anyone. Um, And I talk about things like trans people deserving human rights that affect my life directly and that I think are beyond politics. Um, but I also, and like I said, it's not what I would have chosen, but I also have immense respect for, uh, my NPR colleagues or peers or however you want to put it, um, who are striving to make, uh, smart, informative, apolitical, uh, non-perspective driven, Journalism. I am not a person who thinks that 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 is f- a fundamentally flawed thing. I think it is one of a variety of ways to skin the cat of journalism, and I'm glad that we have a variety of them. But like, um, I think it is a great way and important. You know, the other day, Jim Lair died, um, and you know, my dad, who is like I said, a, a movement lefty. Um, and my mom, who's, you know, in her youth, at least she's, she's not super politically oriented, but certainly was culturally oriented to a borderline revolutionarily. <laughs> um, uh, like, uh, my dad and I used to watch the news hour when I was a kid on the tiny television that my dad had in his apartment. This before he remarried. Um, and, he loved and respected Jim Lehrer and Robert McNeil. Um, and, you know, they are, they were, PBS remains the most trusted news outlet in America, broadcast news outlet anyway, I think. And the reason is because, you know, Jim Lehrer didn't even vote. Um, you know, because he believed that 
it was his job to be an impartial arbiter. And he was so he was so successful at that that he and, you know, colleagues like Gwen Eiffel and so forth, you know, were often asked to moderate presidential debates and so forth because they were trusted by all sides. And I think there is immense value in that. Now, that said, like, I love and admire, like, Brooke Gladstone, who hosts on the media, and their show is built on the premise that they have fundamental biases and they're going to disclose them. Hey, new listeners, check out the Brooke Gladstone episode. She was great to, on this here show. Yeah, Brooke Gladstone, cool lady, cool lady. Um, so, like, I don't think it's the only way to do it, you know, um, but I have immense respect for it and I'm grateful for it. And, like, you know, on the turnaround, I interviewed Audie Cornish, um, who's a host at NPR, and, uh, you know, she's obviously a very brilliant woman and or she wouldn't have gotten that gig. You know what I mean? And she was she was just like, yeah, the story's not about me. So I feel no pressure to inject any of myself into it. And I, I want to say that, like, I, I want to say NPR has never pressured me in any area around this other than to say we expect you to follow the ethics guidelines like uh, other than that there's never there's i never get like people have weird ideas about these behind the scenes forces pushing npr reporters to do this or that um i think uh in in my experience nobody has ever so much as uh sent me a note that said like hey i know you interviewed boots riley and he's a he's a communist who believes the government should be overthrown by force. And uh, uh, maybe you should interview, I guess, Dennis Miller. I don't know who the other other side of that is. No no one has ever, ever, ever. And even like, even on profanity and vulgarity, which come up on the show, you know, whether we can say Pootie Tang on Mm -hmm. NPR, um, they're always really, uh, they go out of their way to be decent and accommodating. So uh, I got, I got nothing but good things to say about it. Speaking of NPR, I, I I grew up with an ethicist father. So I used to get these, these hypothetical situations thrown at me at the dinner table. So I'm going to give you one. And if you hate it, you don't have to you don't have to. Is it a lit? You grew up with a literal ethics, like a yes, professional a, a professor of philosophy who 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 specialized in in ethics, in education. Got it. Yes. No, he didn't go around. Got you it. Know, dividing babies. Uh, Got but, it. Uh, and he he's still there out there. Hi, pop. He's probably gonna hear this. Ninety one years old. Um. But here's my hypothetical that, that if you don't like it, you don't have to play. So Terry calls you up tomorrow. Terry Gross. And she says, Jesse, I'm retiring. Do you want? Terry Brad. Terry, Br- Terry Bradshaw, Terry Bradshaw calls, calls you up tomorrow. Yeah, you can have the Sunday show. No. Terry Gross calls you up and says, you want the show. What do you say? I think your answer five years ago and now might be different. Just think. No, I think in general, probably it's I mean, I can't say that I wouldn't talk to them about it. Um, and that there wasn't, that there would not be a way for me to do it, but I don't think I could do it. Like, um, you know, there's a reason Terry asks 40% of her guests, uh, about whether or not they have kids or why they decided not to have kids. It's cause she, she and her husband don't have kids and she works 80 hours a week. <laughs> well, I was thinking about it in terms of you, what if you had to give up everything else? Yeah. 
Yeah, well, I mean, I don't know. I mean, the the biggest the biggest reason for me, if I had to give up, if it was just a question of like, I give up bullseye and get fresh air and nothing else in my <laughs> life changes. Okay, that, that's easy. Yeah, yeah. sure, I, I, I'd do that. Like, I'm not precious about me having created bullseye and not having created fresh air. And I'm not precious about going to work for, you know, going to work for Danny, the executive producer of Fresh Air. He's a really nice guy. You know, like, that all sounds fine to me. Uh, the biggest The biggest difference between... And and I think that I would be fine. Uh, I, I would be fine at interviewing the non arts and culture guests that are on Fresh Air. It's a skill I would have to build up a little bit, but I think I could do that. Um, but uh, in general, <laughs> the bigger problem would be that that's a five day a week show, yeah. and uh, and it's also in Philadelphia, and I'm from California. Uh, my wife is from California. I have elderly parents. Uh, I have two two brothers and a stepmother, and uh, I have uh, my my wife has a brother and a sister, and they all live in the Bay Area. And um, I have a, a daughter who um, we have a legal arrangement with the Los Angeles Unified School District that allows her to go to a, a school that she needs to go to. Um, like there's a lot of things that keep me in the city of Los Angeles, but, but the bigger, the bigger part, even if they said, you know, you can do it from NPR West and Culver city or something like that is the bigger part is that it's just a completely different lifestyle to do that job five days a week versus one day, one day a week. Yeah. I would think the part of it would be that you're attached to all your different projects that you do now as well. Yeah. I mean, I, I could... You know, I could fit Jordan Jesse Go and Judge John Hodgman into my schedule. Like, um, I, I think I could swing it. You know, Peter Sagel still still writes books and plays. You know, um, but the biggest the biggest difference is just if you're doing one or two interviews every day, it is an unrelenting. Like to do it the way that I do it, which I think is probably similar to how Terry does it. And again, I use her first name as though I've talked to her more than once in my life. Um, but like, the, I think she does it with the similar level of care, maybe even greater than I. And so, like, I know how hard my work is now. Um, doing it once a week, you know, doing two interviews a week for for one show a week, or one and a half interviews a week for one show a week, and some occasional reruns. Um, and I don't, I don't know if I could physically handle it. I mean, like a big, a big part of the decision for me, besides having kids and having family, is that I also have chronic migraine headaches that are very serious, and um, so I just, it's really hard for me to uh, manage a lot of inflexible uh, commitments, um, time-wise. Like if I had, a, I would also have a really hard time with the job where I had a lot of meetings that I couldn't miss. Um, or, you know, working on set for long periods of time. Um, those, those kind of jobs where, um, you just absolutely have to be there and in top form are tough. So, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know that I could do it, but also <laughs> if, <laughs> if they've never revealed any interest in the prospect, <laughs> They already have a great straight white dude uh, in Dave Davies who does an awesome job. So he does, and and I have no inside info. I just want in case you're getting excited. Um, 
Ah, uh, bummer. Yeah, but I mean, if they if they called me and said, "Do you want to be part of a team of people that do it once a week or something?" I would. That would be amazing. I mean, I I have nothing but love and respect and appreciation for that show, and it's much more popular than mine. <laughs> yeah, than, than everyone. But yeah, 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 yeah. I would enjoy listening to it by four different hosts or so. That'd be interesting. Um. Yeah, I mean, I'm. You know, they they've had some. Uh, Anna Sales gone and mm-hmm. done it a, yep. a fair amount. She she does a, always does a wonderful job. I, like I said, I think Dave Davies, who I've never met, but almost called by his first name just now. I think Dave Davies always does a really great job. I think he's got a beautiful voice and really does a good job, especially on the news stuff. And I like that he's obviously a baseball fan, so sometimes there's baseball stuff on Fresh Air now. People's voices, yeah, people don't think enough about the voices of hosts as listeners. They just they like them or not, but they don't realize how much. I I have a fantasy that I'm gonna. Um, do you know Susie who runs the Max Fun London? Yeah, sure. Uh, I, I listened to her birder podcast, her birding podcast once by accident. Oh, because she liked an episode of mine, and 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 we chatted. And I'm going to. I just thought we should try to record something and just see if we can find something we like to talk about because I think our voices are nicely different. Yeah, it's funny. Like it's funny how when you are a radio producer. You really have to think about that a lot in the same way that uh, in the same way that those like producers at Fox News like only only hired hot blondes or whatever. Like you really have to think about not just not just how attractive or appealing someone's voice is, um, but the ways that voices fit together. You can't have like a big a big development challenge for us in developing new shows is you can't have two hosts where you can't tell them apart. Yeah. It's my only critique real well. I have others, but my only main critique is I love yes, yes, no on reply all, mm-hmm. but I can't, I get, I get confused a lot as to who's talking and it, it kind of yeah. drives me. I out. mean, they're also, they, they come from a school sort of like Tom and Ray Maliazzi <laughs> uh, on car talk, which is like, it's, it, there is also, there's like two headed monster where you're sort of not supposed to be able to tell them apart. I laugh because it's sort of like, and yet nothing like <laughs> each other. Um, uh, and the last, the last big thing I wanted to, to ask you, well, the last major thing, and it bring, comes back to the old attention, acclaim, fame thing, is I was listening to your, watching your Bond talk from last 2018, and it's a really good talk about how and why we should make things creative things right is that fair description yeah or the or the 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 ethics of doing so like it was a conference about that and then it happened to be held at a movie theater where as a kid i went to see jurassic park yeah uh Dumped it, with spanish, spanish subtitles yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah and uh and so i was I had agreed to do it because some nice folks I knew had asked me. And then I found out it was like really right. I was like, wow, this is the, the gentrificationist gentrification thing ever in my neighborhood that I grew up in. And, uh, so I was like, I'm, I got mad for a minute. No one deserved me. These are all lovely people. Uh, no one deserved me being mad, but they didn't know that they had stepped on a uh, they had stepped on a traumatic stress uh, landmine for me. And so I was just like, fine, I'm just going to like, I'm going to make it completely about <laughs> a completely 100% about like morality. Yeah. 
And and I'm gonna put it in the show notes because I'm glad you did do it because it's great talk and it's something that people that slips away more and more. I definitely have a good vest on, so people should watch it for that cool vest I'm wearing. You do. I was going to say that I know we're not going to get into the fashion stuff because that could be a whole nother hour, but I'll put some notes on the show notes about it and talk about it in my intro. But that outfit, as compared to a few years ago, the blazer and khakis, I like the new look. If that was a new look, <laughs> um, a lot. Um, but oh, in that, uh, you talk a lot about, uh, or a fair amount about how one shouldn't consider whether one's making money or doing it full time as whether you are valid as a creative person, a creator, as they say these days. But the question that doesn't come up as much, although you do mention the guy who loves building the HO train set in the basement, but if you're not the guy who's building the HO train set in the basement and you want to be seen and heard, I don't know, in general and, and to you, how much is enough? How much wouldn't be enough? How much more do you want than you have? Do you want John's amount of Twitter followers as opposed to your 50,000? <laughs> uh, you know, how much does it for, affect you? For me personally, yeah. the, this, 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 this question just goes personally to me personally. and the question just as a theoretically, how do you think, how do you approach it and how should people? I mean, for me, there's not much about being famous that I want or like, but there are a couple of things. And I think this is probably true for a lot of public personalities of all scales. I mean, obviously I'm at the very lowest end of the public personality scale, but I think this, I think this is probably true for 75 or 80%. Um, I think I love doing I love performing that is for an audience and um, you can only do that if you have a certain amount of public profile. So, you know, Judge John, doing Judge John Hodgman live shows and the fact that I make money from them is awesome. I don't need to do... You know, like we, we play whatever, six, 800 seat rooms. I don't necessarily need to play arenas. I don't aspire to play arenas. Uh, but, you know, in that, in that range is where you can do it and like not travel alone and make money and get to do the show. Like, I mean... I would like it's not a big it's not a hugely different experience to me to do a show like that for you know you need 50 or 100 people for it to be a quorum sort of but be the difference between 50 or 100 and 700 or 1000 having played all of those sizes of venues is pretty negligible uh for doing comedy it's mostly just as it does anyone give a care you know um uh to show up and you're saying that in terms of you as a performer, anything beyond that is over is is not overkill, but doesn't it, it makes it another beast that you don't you don't crave. It doesn't make it it, it doesn't make it better. Yeah, it doesn't doesn't yeah, make it. I, I completely you know although my 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 limits have been you know fifty to four hundred all ever in my whole life. I never imagined wanting more than a nice two hundred. 
people if I do something. Yeah, you know? nice 200. 200 is great. 200 is a great number. You know, we just we but you know we just played for I think probably less than 200 at SF Sketchfest. Me and Jordan at the Punchline, and I mean I we probably could have sold a, a few more tickets. Is was the size of the venue. Uh, it sold out pretty comfortably, but. Um, it was great. I mean, I don't have any need to play a bigger room than the punchline in San Francisco. That's maybe 140 or something. I don't know. Um, so that, but, but obviously if, if I could only sell 140 tickets, I couldn't tour because I couldn't afford it. Um, cause travel is expensive. Um, so that's something people sometimes forget about touring. Um, so that's that piece of it. I think in general, I would prefer not to be the kind of famous where I'm put in front of people who would be bothered by me being put in front of them. I don't need to like, I, I, I'm perfectly glad to be a cult figure. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I, really do, I really don't need to like be the kind of guy that everyone has an opinion about. Ugh, what a yeah. hassle. Um, and I don't, you know, like me getting recognized on the street every other month. Right. That's a, that's a sweet <laughs> that, spot, right? That's yeah. great. Yeah, it's great. It's great. I'm like, hey, I just met a total stranger who already likes me. This is great. Um, uh, And no one ever, no one would ever have me, talked to me on the street who didn't like me. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Uh, well, who on earth would, would be exposed enough to me to dislike me and recognize me um so and and then but then you know like i'd like to you know it's great to make money at your work because i don't have any other source of money um and uh i am constantly terrified of penury because of uh growing up without money and knowing knowing that i'm i might have to you know take care of my parents or or my other other family members at the drop of a hat. Um, so it's great to it's great to make good money. That's that's cool too. But like besides that, I feel like the amount of famous that I am is fine. the the only The only thing that I do wish sometimes is you know I could make any podcast I wanted, um, simply because podcasts are very inexpensive to produce. But um, I'm not married to podcasts as a medium, and so. I, I would have to be more famous to get to launch a TV show or um, make a movie or those kinds of things, um, you know. And like the the real reason I think for most people that they want to get famous is not because they want more and more people to give them a claim. Not that we don't like a claim, but like uh, it, it feels the same at those different scales. Um, but rather because you know, there are practical realities in terms of paying for making things. And, you know, television shows are very expensive to make, even at the cheapest, you know, like I, I've made, I made video stuff for Put This On, my menswear blog, and I would love to make more of them. Um, but I'm not, without the support of the blogosphere that doesn't really exist anymore, um, I'm not famous enough to... Uh, build enough audience to pay for even that modest production. Um, so, uh, and that's, that's a, that's a bummer. Like I'd, I'd love to, I'd love to do that. Like if, if I was, if I was as famous as Steve Buscemi, maybe I could be the host of Antiques Roadshow. That's pretty much my, 
career uh, goal. I don't know. You don't have to be Brad Pitt famous right. to be to host Somehow an Antiques Roadshow. Somehow you that makes me think of Steve Buscemi as the host of Antiques Roadshow, which I would like. He'd do a great job. He's a nice man. The other day on Jordan Jesse Go, one thing that is so charming about whenever Maria Bamford just talks to people is that she talks about her old jobs, her real jobs, as if she could have to go back to retail someday. She she's, she doesn't assume anything. I think that speaks to her mental illness. It does. It does. But it's something It's very charming somehow. I'm like, no, Maria. Maria, we're not going to let that happen. Yeah. I'm like, I do sometimes just want to like put my arm around Maria's shoulder and be like, Maria, you know you're literally the best stand-up comedian in the entire world, right? <laughs> but... Uh, uh, you know, Maria Maria works hard to be a great artist, and she also works hard to uh, to take care of herself. And I think um, uh, knowing that she should that she could become a plumber is uh, is a way that she takes care of herself. And I I relate to it because you know one of the difficult things of uh, the line of business that I am in is its instability and. That is, you know, speaking as someone who has been poor before, um, uh, again, never hungry, but um, uh, but legit poor. Um, you know, the the real difference is the real difference is stability. You know, like the like I haven't gotten to the point in my career where I have. Uh, been able to save enough that I could, that I don't have to worry about my career taking a downturn. Um, and so like that part, that's where the anxiety comes from. And like, there's, you know, it is not that much better to make a hundred thousand dollars a year than $50,000 a year. If, uh, they are similarly stable and uh, they are similarly, it is similarly possible to cover one's expenses from them. Um, you know, there's, you get more variables when you have kids and stuff. There's more places where the expenses could diverge from, but like, I have always, <laughs> like, to the extent that I have any source of comfort, it's always that, like, I just, I know that I, lived for a long time on a thousand dollars a month <laughs> and outside of the fact that i have kids now <laughs> like i could i could totally do that again it's it's okay like just get catastrophic health insurance and yeah and this all uh, speaks to like in in the bond lecture the fact that it's not so bad to be someone who has a regular job but makes art on the side yeah i mean like honestly the most financially comfortable i have ever been in my life um, is probably when I worked 30 hours a week as a receptionist at a nonprofit and they paid pretty good. They paid like, it was like $14 an hour or something. Um, uh, and so it was enough money that I could eat on it and it was a nice place to go to work and, um, everybody was nice there and it left me enough time to do my radio show on the side and do sketch comedy. Um, and like, that was enough money. My wife was also working, so there was no fear that like I would be left with no income at all if um, if I got laid off or something like that. But I, my job was pretty secure, and like that was that was great. Like 
that's that's not a bad way to live. And there are jobs that that are like that that also, you know, uh, destroy your life and suck out all your joy and life energy. Um, I don't want to suggest that those are also comparable. But um, if you find a job that doesn't pay that great but is secure and if not rewarding, at least non soul sucking, uh, is a lot worse, a lot worse ways to yeah, live your life. I had a 12 years, San Francisco public library, halftime, full benefits, telephone information. It was great. Yeah. 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 I got a, I got a, my wife has a cousin that worked at the San Francisco public library, similar situation. I mean, I worked, I worked a number of, I worked in the elections department in San Francisco for a while and, uh, it was a great job. It was a great job. It was nice. I liked, you know, you'd like go say hi to the nice people you work with. You work for the city. You work for like a really, a really interesting like cross section of that city, a really broad group of people. That's nice. You know, you just, that's a, it's a, it's a pretty good time. Well, let me, let me end with a little callback to, I forgot to mention earlier to LeVar and, and Twitter and all that stuff in that, when you, after that episode, I tweeted about your, you know, standing up against the guy who's controlling the thermostat from Malaysia. And, oh, no, no. What I tweeted about was that it was when I was first reading John's new book about his ostensible waning of his fame. And I said, I don't know, John. I think you still got it when you can just call up LeVar Burton and have him on your show. Um, and <laughs> as is my general way on Twitter, one person liked it in the whole world, and it was LeVar Burton. <laughs> and that's all I needed. Man, you know, I I have, um, I have, my oldest is eight, and I have a cabin in the mountains in uh, Central California, and uh, we have a TV VCR there, and I got a couple of VHS tapes of Reading Rainbow and, um, and watched them with my kids. And... Uh, they are so, so lovely. Like I, I had fond memories of reading Rainbow from when I was that age, generally. But you know, not everything holds up, and they really made me watching them. Really made me proud to be a public broadcaster, um, because. Yeah, there's so much sincere care for uh, the people who would be watching them, and so much. Yeah, they're just they're really lovely, and you can really tell that Lavar is a good dude. And then, like I said, I got a friend that works with him, and and she has nothing but good things to say. So uh, I was really, it was really neat to, it was really neat to get to talk to him. Thanks, Jesse. This was a lot of fun. Thank you. I'll talk to you again another time. Bye. Okay. Bye-bye. You can find everything Jesse Thorne does in the podcast world at MaximumFun.org, uh, where I didn't mention this at the top of the show. He not only makes shows with him in them, there are many, many more that he is the empresario of or just the host, uh, the hosting entity of. So check that out. He also, um, if you just Google his name, he's also something of a fashion mogul these days, as well as a podcast mogul. And that's interesting stuff as well. Uh, as I said at the top of the show, 
This has become sporadic. I'd love to make it regular if I had a reason to do so. I'd love to do a, a answering emails, texts, Twitter, tweet, tweets. Uh, I'd love to find a new topic. Or I'm just going to continue having conversations with people who interest me from time to time. But if you want me to do something, or if you want to come on and talk to me about something, bring it up. I'm at 15minsjamieb on Insta and Twitter. And if you go to 15minutesjamiebergerger.com, that's the website, and you can write me through there. Or 15minutesjamieberger at gmail.com. This has been 15 Minutes. Our engineer is the intrepid Ed Patnode. And I am... Jamie Berger.